Robert Rubin was the Secretary of the Treasury and Director of the National Economic Council under President Bill Clinton. He had a distinguished career in finance, joining Goldman Sachs in 1966 and eventually becoming co-chairman. He is also a founder of the Hamilton Project, an economic policy think tank out of the Brookings Institution. Today he will discuss the economic outlook in the post-COVID-19 world. Let's listen in. Bob, I wanted to start off by asking you, um, what is your personal economic outlook or framework uh, over the next year or two? How do you feel? You know, and you and I have talked about this, I think, Howard. I've had the same view for really at least the last, well, since the COVID thing really took off. And so far, it seems to be kind of active. It sort of seemed to be on the trajectory that at least seemed to me the most likely, which is the following that you'd have a 30 to 35% decline in the second quarter, which is obviously monumental. You would have what Jason Furman likes to call a, a, a part rebound because you've fallen so far, but that there are a lot of impediments to the rebound becoming a, a V, as right. I don't think anybody's talking about anymore, but they were at one time. I didn't think it was realistic, but in any event. And so then what you have after that, which is where I think we are now, actually, Howard, and it was pretty likely we would be here, is you're in a slow, difficult recovery with ups and downs. And I think the COVID is worse, frankly, than I think I would have thought just because the management of it has been so terrible. But but even even with, without that, it, it looked like there would be spikes and one thing or another. So I think it's a long road ahead. I, I really do. And I think this is my view, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I think even after you get a widely available vaccine, let's say whenever it is, just make up the first or second quarter of next year, I have no idea. I think a lot of the effects of these two crises are going to last for a long time to come. Um, a lot of small businesses are failing, and most of them will never come back. A lot of our clients, and we deal with a lot of the Fortune 100, quite a fair number at least, uh, are clearly rethinking how they're going to do business. There are going to be fewer jobs. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to the big cities. Hopefully, they'll be okay, but who knows? Uh, there are a lot of other dimensions of what's happening. Our fiscal situation, I know there are people who think this can go on forever. I don't have to think so. I think we're doing the right thing now, but I think someplace out there is going to be a hell of an issue. The question of whether this Fed policy, which I think is absolutely right right now, where does that lead us? There's just a lot of uncertainties and complexities, Howard, and, and I, uh, the trade trade relations are breaking down. Maybe Biden can do something to bring that back. Maybe he can't. So I think there's a lot of I think I think a lot of our clients now, the big big corporate clients, are saying the 2020. They're sort of writing off 2021, and saying really the time to think about now is 2022. Wow. And even then, I think I was on a phone call, a Zoom call this morning with a former head of the CEA. Well, it was Jason Furman, and Jason said some of these employee employee the employment effects, some of the effects on workers, going to go on for years. Yes. So I, I think this is a long haul ahead of us, Howard. Oh, I think you're right, Bob. The you know I. I I, I feel that, that, that the idea of the V-shaped recovery is really a misnomer. Uh, it, it, to me, the V implies some symmetry, you know, that you come up at the same speed you went down. And that's, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. And, you know, no. this, was, this was one of the, this, the, the deterioration only took a couple of months. And the recovery, it looks like it's going to take, uh, you know, a year or plus or minus at least. And, and uh so would you say that at that GDP in 22 will be back to the 19 level? Would that be your guess? 
well, the, the, the last CBO numbers, which came out, I believe, on July 2nd, I'm pretty sure that's right. I think, if I remember this correctly, and I, I think I do, the last Congressional Budget Office number showed that by the end of 2022 is when you get back to where you were at the end of 2019. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, if, if I had to make a bet, anyway, that, that's what they showed. Yeah. Just, um, yeah, that's what they showed. Okay. Um, you you uh, wrote an op-ed piece uh, in April uh, and talked about your experience uh, at Treasury with the Mexican crisis and the Asian crisis. Um, how do you, how would you say that this uh, is similar and how is it different? You mean the crisis or the way it's being yeah. approached? No, this, this crisis uh, versus those. Well, this is different. I mean, Mexico was a, people don't remember terribly well anymore. Mexico was a real threat to the global economy, but it was in Mexico. Yeah. And the United States at that time was a very strong participant in the global economy. And we could get together with the IMF, which we did. Larry Summers and myself and, and Stan Fisher and, and Condesu with the IMF. And we were able to provide the assistance combined with their reform to get Mexico out. This is a global pandemic. And I think some aspects of this have not are, are far from having fully developed yet. For example, Howard, I had another op-ed, which New York Times, uh, with uh, the head of the International Rescue Committee. And the, our, the point we made was that there's a humanitarian crisis right now in a lot of emerging market countries. Right. And that's going to get worse, not better, and most likely. And that will feed back in all kinds of ways, at least in my opinion, that's the argument you made there, to us economically. So I think there's a lot ahead that is really very difficult. Yeah. And we don't have, you know, another thing, the Asian crisis, the Mexican crisis, the Russian crisis then. The United States was a, a, a very powerful position economically. We were well regarded. Uh, we were a leader. We were the leader, not a leader, the leader. Global interaction. All of that has, has changed, Howard. Right. Right. And there's no leadership today because it's not coming from any place else. And we've basically forfeited it. Right. There, there's a great leadership vacuum. Um, uh, Could I make one other comment, Howard? Sure, there is another piece of this, too. If you get into the September, October, COVID is still as omnipresent as it is today. And then you have the flu season on top of that. Right. I... I think that's something to be additionally troubled about. Anyway, yeah. How do you? What do you? You you mentioned uh, that you think that what uh, the Fed has been doing is is right. Uh, if you look at at the Fed and the Treasury, uh, what's your assessment of of their activities uh, in the COVID? Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm in the process of trying to write an op-ed about it. It's time to do it. I mean, I've got a draft, but I have the time to really get into shape. I think the following are, I think, I agree with Tim Geithner. Tim said that the, uh, that what the Fed did this time is substantially more powerful than what he and Hank and all did, well, he and Ben actually, did back in 09, and that we needed to be more powerful. Yes. And so that it was appropriate. I, I agree with Tim. And I think on the fiscal situation, again, when you see GDP down 30 some odd percent, 32, 33% in a quarter, you know that there's one needed to have this. That's on the one hand. But where I disagree a little bit with the current view of things 
is, and I think we need to have another very big bill. I don't know if we'll get it. You can see what's happening. But, but where I disagree a little bit with a lot of the people that I'm friendly with is I think at the same time we should be focusing, and I suspect, Howard, you would agree with this, on what do we do about our fiscal situation going forward? That We can't do it now. Yeah. But, and, and maybe we could do this for several years, and maybe we can't. And nobody knows the answer to that. So I think we should be giving a lot of intellectual engagement to the question of how to deal with this. So if it starts to go against, if, if, if there's a collision between what we need to do for the demand side <laughs> and the adverse effects that can come from fiscal conditions of the kind that we have, we'll be ready for it intellectually and politically. And we're not, nobody wants to do that except me. <laughs> nobody cares what I think. So. Yeah, well, that really, that really raises my favorite question, Bob, uh, which is what, what do you think, I mean, let's say we continue to do somewhat more of what we have been doing for the last couple of months. What do you, how do you, what do you think of the consequences? Uh, the, the best, Howard, I think far and away the best commentary these days and, and for years now in markets has been by Howard Marks. And the last piece that Howard Marks, no, two, two times ago, Howard's piece, you'll remember this, was the, the, the most dangerous words in investing are this time is different. Two of the things you listed was this time is different. Deficits don't matter. This time is different. Debt doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, there are people who argue that, that I, serious people who I respect, who argue that we can do this for years for all kinds of reasons that we could discuss, though you probably don't want to. And, and maybe that's right. But I think we should be preparing for the possibility that it's not right. Yeah. And I, I think this could, I don't believe in levitation. And I think this could all maybe this can go on for several more years and people you and I both respect Howard think that the probabilities are it can but maybe it can't and I think that's a serious risk we should be thinking about I think I wrote in that memo that modern modern monetary theory is just a theory <laughs> modern monetary theory in my opinion yes yeah. but even people who are but you even people you and I know well and respect who are very who dismiss modern monetary theory still yeah. think I'd be able to go on for years for all kinds of other reasons. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, look, we've had expansive monetary policy and, and very low interest rates uh, for 12 years. And we and, and there's no inflation. And uh, there are there are very powerful deflationary forces uh, around. So it, that's that's possible. Uh, yeah. I, I As an investor, I mean, you and I talked a lot about investment and we were both on an advisory board together although you left it and i'm still stuck there but uh, but as an investor i kind of think one should I, I believe in the long run this is my view i'd rather invest in the long run in the united states than any other country but there but the premise there is at some point our political system will reestablish, and this is what you all are about reestablish sufficient effectiveness to deal with our issues reasonably well so that's that's what i believe in the long run but in the shorter run, I think we're in for, I just think we're in for a very difficult period. No, I think that's right. Uh, of course, uh, you know. Uh, or could be. I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say we, we are. That's, that's wrong. I think the probabilities are that we're in for a period of great uncertainty and complexity that could go on for quite some extended period of time with whatever effects that may have on market. Yeah. Of course, you know, Europe, I think, has, uh, I think our national debt is 20% uh, uh, of uh, our national debt? Yeah, no, I guess I'm wrong. Our our deficit is 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 rather no. small compared to GDP. Yeah, our deficit. No, well, our deficit is about five. Will be about five percent of GDP. Yeah, and 
our debt, well, now our debt's going up so quickly. It had been about 80% of GDP, the publicly held debt of the federal government. Right. It, 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 but by the end of this year, it will be about 100% of GDP and, and rising rapidly. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Roughly. Of course, you know, uh, a, a great deal of what's going on is a trade-off between two difficult things. You, in your, in your April op-ed, you talked about the dilemma between the opening the schools and, and uh, uh, you know, and, and fighting the disease. Um, and it, it, at many points in time, we've had this trade-off between health and uh, econo economy. On the other hand, you see that Sweden uh, put the economy first and uh, didn't, uh, uh, didn't safeguard health, and they have health problems and economic problems. So I guess it's it's I guess it's really a uh, a genuine dilemma with no easy solution. No, but as an investor, I think that's exactly right, Howard. It didn't have to be that way, though. Right. If, if we had, and I'm not talking for, talking about Nirvana, but if we had had some reasonable approach to dealing with COVID, I think right. we could have been a very different place. You know, where I started to get to before was so for me personally, and I'm not making a brief for myself, but in fact, I wouldn't make a brief for myself, but. I, I want to be exposed to the U.S. economy for the long term, right. but I also want to have a cautious bias because I think there's just, as I said a moment ago, in the short and intermediate term, a lot of complexity and uncertainty. And even in the longer term, there's, there's a lot of complexity and uncertainty. So I adjusted my beta accordingly. So I have one that I can, if, if, if we do well, I hopefully will do well. And if we do badly, I, I'm at least in a reasonably in a reasonable position, albeit obviously I'll suffer along with everybody else. But that, that's that's the my mind is a, is be exposed. My view exposed to the U.S. market, exposed to the U.S. economy more than any other economy. I have a lot of reservations about China. Maybe I'm wrong, and I want to have enough balance so if things go bad, I'm, I'm still okay. And when you say reservations about China, you you mean reservations about wanting to have investment exposure there, or reservations about the threat they pose to us? No, I was thinking. Well, that's an, an interesting question, which I, I <laughs> which I do have a very strong, but not strong view. I have a view as to what I don't profess to be any any expertise on China, but I hang around with a lot of people who do. Right. So I'm reflecting my judgment about what they say. Right. Uh, Somebody, Howard, that you and I have enormous respect for who, well, if I say what, well, everybody in this call will know, name will know well, knows a lot about China. And I, I was on a Zoom call with him last night, and he made the comment, and I agree with this, that there will, if you sit here in the United States, you look at the strengths of China, and you look at the 1.4 billion people, and you look at an autocratic government that can do what it wants, et cetera, there's a lot of enthusiasm here amongst many people for investing in China, and it may all turn out to be fine. They've done well for a long time. On the other hand, they have a lot of problems too. Yes. They really do, and you know, there's no rule, of, there's very little rule of law. There's pervasive corruption, despite all that's been done. The demographics are terrible. The environmental conditions are difficult. I don't know whether you can be a. I don't know whether the repressive. You know, Kissinger says publicly it's the most repressive regime by far since Mao. Now, does that make any difference economically? I don't know, but I just wouldn't be comfortable having a lot of. I actually have some. I mean, some of the private equity firms I'm involved with have investments. Sure. I, I wouldn't. I, I'd be careful about China. Yeah, uh, Bob. Let's let's uh, switch from purely economic to also social, and the, the question of uh, inequality. 
you know, it's been it's been uh, rising for a couple of decades, uh, and uh, obviously there there are some people now who don't think that's such a such a great idea, and they're not happy with it. And uh, that that's putting it mildly. Um, okay. What what are your thoughts on what the government can do uh, to address uh, at the federal level to address the issue? Oh, I think that I think. They could do a lot that would be very constructive with respect not only, I think they could take three objectives, Howard, and pursue, which are in my judgment, inter, interdependent. I wrote a fairly good, well, I don't know if it was fairly good or not. I wrote an op-ed about this in the Washington Post before the 2016 election, thinking that Hillary would be president and maybe this would be of use to somebody. It turned out that didn't work out quite the way I thought it was likely to, but anyway, um, I think they could pursue widespread economic well-being, reduced inequality, and strong growth. And I think they're interdependent. And what I would do if I were them, Howard, I would have a strong, inclusive growth public investment agenda. I would plan to get my fiscal house in better order than it is. And I think if we can get back to some reasonable place, I think there's a lot of room to increase taxes. Given Before this COVID thing started, Tax revenues were 16.5% of GDP, federal tax revenues, that is. They were 20% at the end of our administration, and we were doing just fine. Yeah. They're averaged about 18 and three quarter percent, I believe, for full employment economies. Right. So there's a lot of room, at least under those conditions. Now we're not in the same shape, obviously, but I think there is a lot of room to do. So I would do that. And I think we could pursue both objectives. And if you have a progressive, if you have, a, and I would raise them progressively. So if you have them progressively, what are you doing? You're promoting growth. That's the inclusive growth agenda. You are promoting widespread economic well-being. And because your tax structure is progressive, you bring down the top and therefore reduce inequality. And that's what I would do. So, so on the fiscal side, primarily a more, uh, more progressive tax. Uh, I would. There is another thing you could try to do with the politics. Of the, well, the politics, all the, look, everything. I think there's only one issue for our economy as an investor or as a, a citizen or anything else. I think there is only one issue, actually. Over the long run, will our political system work again? You know, it's what you all with with the no labels. Yeah. If our political system works, Marty Feldstein said to me once, and I've never forgotten this. It wasn't so, it wasn't that long before he died, actually. And Marty said that if he, who was a very conservative Republican, but I, you know, highly distinguished economist at Harvard, if Marty and a liberal, equally convinced liberal, but both committed to compromise, the give and take of compromise got together, they could solve most of the country's problems. And I think that's true. The question is we totally, virtually totally lost that on both sides of the aisle. The question, will we get it back? I kind of think we probably will. If we don't, then I think we're in real trouble. If we well, do- Bob, Bob, we're doing everything we can to make it happen. Yeah, no, I say that's what you all do. And it's, 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 it, is, it is the only issue that matters because if we don't solve that problem, nothing else works. If we do solve that problem, we have tremendous strengths. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I, I can tell you, we see encouraging signs from from our point of view. I think what you all are doing is good, Howard, and 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 you also have some relationship to, to the Problem Solvers Caucus, don't you? Well, we, yes, we kind of organize and sponsor and 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 work with it. Yes. You know, another thing that may help there of the two hundred thirty-five Democrats in the House, one hundred and four, I believe, are in the new. Well, not I believe they are one hundred and four in the new Dems, which is basically a. Most of those people are people who really want to make the system work. And there'll be more after this time. And if the Democrats get the control of the Senate, it's going to be winning in states, Montana, 
Colorado, so forth. You're winning as, a, as a, somebody who wants to make the system work and, and winning from the, you're winning from the center. So that's, it seems to me, creates possibilities of, of working. Great, great. Um, maybe the last thing, oh, well, I'm starting to get questions from the audience. We'll turn to those in a minute. But uh, the last thing I want you to do, since you let us make a pitch for no labels and you were, you were kind to us in your remarks, I want to let you, uh, give you a chance to talk about the Hamilton Project, which uh, I've been involved with you in, and, and tell uh, us a little bit about that. You know, it's an interesting thing, and it tells you something about Washington today, as Gene Sperling said to me. About 15 years ago, Peter Orzag and I were testifying at a committee hearing opposing Bush's Social Security reform. And when we left, I turned to Peter, who had been head of OMB, as you know, and head of the CBO. Uh, and I said to Peter, we're always opposing what Bush is proposing. What would it cost us to develop our own agenda? You know, with, a, with an agenda paper and then policies pursuant thereto that are fact and evidence-based, that are not partisan, they're not ideological. So Peter came up with a budget and a bunch of people got together, uh, including Roger Altman and then Larry Sperman and a bunch of other people. As Howard said, Howard's involved now and others, a, a, a lot of serious people. And so we started this, we really started for ourselves. We wanted to sort of, we wanted to reach out to the best minds around the country and, and bring their thinking together, convene these kinds of things, four, five, six events a year, it's over. But where we are right now, is we do about five or six events a year, each one around some significant policy issue. And we have tremendous traction and tremendous platform in Washington. And what Gene Sperling said, and this is what it tells you about the system, which is why new labels may be onto something. I asked Gene, why do you think this has gotten so much traction? We have a low budget. We don't have our own people. I mean, we have a very good staff, but they're small. We convene people from around the country, and yet we have tremendous traction. And Gene said there was a real appetite this is a genius view, a real appetite for seriousness of purpose, nonpartisan, non-ideological seriousness of purpose around policy where people can come together and try to make, try to develop policies that are practical and sensible and can happen politically. And it, so if Gene is right in his interpretation of why this thing has been successful, which has been very successful in terms of the attraction and so on, um, it's a little bit hopeful, at least, Howard, about there might be more more appetite for this in Washington than the noise would make you think. Great, great. Well, I, I've enjoyed my my uh, connection with the Hamilton Project. So, I can I ask you a question, Howard? Sure, sure. Given all the uncertainties and complexities, why do you think the S and P five hundred is where it is, or do you think oh, that that's so funny? We got that question uh, from Bill Kaufman, and that was the that was the question I was going to ask you next, Bob. Um, and uh, you know there there are there are there are really a couple of explanations, and they're not unrelated. The the uh, the uh, the frustrated value investors' explanation is that that prices have nothing to do with values, uh, but the market has you to use your word has been levitated by the Fed, uh, and uh, the injection of capital has has reduced the cost of capital. And uh, and the uh, the demanded return on investments, you know, when when the when the risk free rate is zero, bonds at at six percent look like a giveaway, etc. Uh, and uh, and of course the the various programs. Uh, so it's just a manifestation of you can't fight the Fed. Um, and the uh, the uh, 
the growth investor, uh, his contribution is that, you know, a, a significant fraction of the S&P, for example, is the tech stocks and the software stocks, and that they are really terrific companies. They're much better than the big companies of the past. They are much, they're growing much faster than the companies that dominated the S&P in the, in the past. And their competitive position is better because of their moats and their uh, various advantages. Uh, and they uh, don't require more capital to grow because their product is not physical, et, et cetera, and, uh, and so forth. And that they are, uh, they, they have earned very high multiples. Oh, and also that they either in the COVID, they either had their growth accelerated by the COVID experience, yeah. work at home and, and, and so forth, or have had a chance to show that they are relatively impervious to the environment. Uh, so, so this has been a beneficial period for them. They've been able to show their merit. Uh, that's why they're up 27% this year. Uh, the average stock in the S&P is down 11, uh, but, the, but the, uh, the, the wonders of the top stocks have, have brought the S&P to unchanged for the year. So now, is the 11, I should know this, but I don't, I apologize. The, the down 11, I knew the down 11 number, but is the down 11 the average of all the others other than those big four? Or oh, is it all it's the median. It's not the average. It's the median of the 500. Oh, it's, it's not the mean, it's the median. Right. Yeah. Down uh, 11. Okay, well, that's interesting. And by the way, it's something like a quarter of all the stocks are down 26 or, or more. Uh, so we have a, we, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's been bifurcated. Uh, and that the it's all that, that it's almost meaningless to talk about the S and P. Uh, you know, it's interesting about the fighting the Fed. We had a Zoom thing. Uh, was it Wednesday night? I think. Yeah, it was Wednesday night with some of the largest endowment managers. This was not when I say we it was just a few people that you, you and I both know. There was, there was no formal no formal group, <laughs> but some of the largest endowment managers in the country. And some of them are making exactly the case that you, I don't know if you agree with the case or not, but that you can't fight the Fed. I made the argument that you can't levitate indefinitely. Right. Well, that's the key. Yes. I, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The, the image I have is kind of a, you know, we've seen these columns of water which rise and keep yeah. a ball up in the air. Well, yeah. they only work as long as you're pumping. Yeah. When yeah. you stop pumping, it, fall, it falls down. So yeah. I think that's right. But, but, but they, except they would argue that they can keep pumping and pumping and pumping. And yeah. I would argue keep pumping and pumping and pumping. All kinds of things can go wrong. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But we had a pure spirit of debate on that. Yes. Good. Well, listen, it, it, we, you and I have occupied a half an hour and uh, we could go on for a long time. But I want to open it up to the, to, to the other uh, people who are with us today. Uh, and uh, before I do, I want to uh, mention Max Rose. Max is one of our congressmen and members of, of uh, the Problem Solvers. And, uh, and he's with us today. So I just want to acknowledge his presence and, and welcome him. I see we're now, I said before we had 120 people. We've now doubled that. We're up to 240 people now, which is great. Uh, and uh, one, of our, one of our greatest uh, members and contributors is Mac McLarty. And I'd like, to call, I'd, call on, I'd like to call on Mac for the first question. If you remember to unmute, there you go. Could I say uh, Mac question? Yeah. <laughs> Bob, can you hear me all right? 
Yes, I want to say something nice about you once your question is done. <laughs> Depending well, on what the question is. Well, <laughs> the question will be the question will be straightforward. Uh, Bob, I was going to thank you for your service and say it was great to see you and thank you for joining us at No Labels. Uh, so let me get in a half a step ahead, knowing you'll overtake me quickly here, regardless. But nice. Bob, put a little more put a little more uh, specifics on kind of this building this bridge is what we're trying to do to use one of President Clinton's um, formulations that you'll remember. But obviously the Fed and the, and, and the, and the Congress with, with Max being on the phone as a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus, but trying to build a bridge here with this unprecedented situation we're in. But how do we, how do we start to rebuild that, particularly with the fiscal responsibility that you noted? Bill, put a little more, put, put a little more flesh on that, if you will. Yeah, what I'd like to see happen, Mac, and there isn't much appetite for this, unfortunately, but as we now legislate, which hopefully we'll get, a, I know Max would have a better sense of this, obviously, than I would, but Max Rose, but, but assuming we get a, a reasonable bill, which is a big assumption, maybe we won't, I would, love to have, I would love to have seen, but it won't happen, I know that, a provision in there saying that we will look, for, we will look toward getting yeah. us beginning to correct the increase in our fiscal trajectory once conditions allow. Now, there's nothing specific about that, but yeah. at least it admits you in principle. Attitudinally. And then if Biden needs another, which I think he's going to need, another major stimulus in the early part of next year, do the same thing. And then as to what the specifics would be, I would take the corporate rate up. Look, Mac, you know this stuff better than I do. I think if you told the average CEO before the, 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 the 17 tax cut that the rate rate would go to 28%. I think most people would have been acceptable of that. It would. I think the pass-through thing needs to be dealt with. I think that up basis on death needs to be dealt with. Uh, I would take the top rate up, maybe not that much, but top rate up some. I would take the capital gains rate up some. I think you could do all of this once conditions allow. Now, I'm not right. saying you And I, but I don't know if we, but the problem, what worries me, Mac, is that I say once when conditions allow, maybe conditions won't really be uh, conducive to that for several years. And it may be that our, that our fiscal trajectory will create a lot of trouble before it becomes conducive, in which case we're going to have a hell of a problem. Got it. Thanks. Can I uh, say one thing about Mac? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, what's wrong with this thing? Oh, okay. You know, we had the NEC at the beginning of the Clinton administration, and it was very successful. But it was very successful because Mac McCarty, as the chief of staff, had the management judgment to recognize that this can only work if he allowed it to work. And a lot of chiefs of staff have very big egos and they stomp all <laughs> things. And if that happened, I don't think we ever would have had the policy processes that President Clinton had or the success in developing good policy that he had. And I used to say this a lot publicly, as you know, Matt. I, th I think you really brought a, a management sense to the White House of a kind that Washington didn't fully recognize, but there was enormously a part of what made President Clinton succeed in that first period. Very good. Bob, your kind words. Thank you. How good to be with you. Next question from uh, Chris Stadler, please. Thanks, Howard. And thanks for being with us, uh, Bob. Really appreciate it. Um, I, I have the same skepticism over modern monetary theory as both of you do. Um, but I do think uh, the conversation around the nation's finances could be improved if we change the way they're calculated that reflects 
spending on assets right. um, differently than it reflects spending on operating expenditures. And when you think about what's necessary for our infrastructure, I, I think those conversations are disadvantaged by the fact that we don't think about building national assets and, and treating them better from an accounting point of view. Um, I'd be interested in what both of you think of that as a, as a way to change the conversation. Well, as, as Mac will remember, uh, we, we, we did look at the question of having uh, some kind of an infrastructure bank or, or yep. separate infrastructure account or something. And yep. there were good arguments for it. I was always a little troubled by it because it, it has a lot of logic to it, as you correctly say. But on the other hand, you know, you could argue that education is an investment fighting poverty is an investment, basic research. It's a little unclear to me how that doesn't get you into a very bad slippery slope. And so I tended to be not in favor of it, even though I recognize that the power of the arguments for it, for the reason I just said. Bob, I think that's a, that's a great answer. And uh, Chris, when you asked it, I thought it was a great question. And it's one that I've thought about a lot, but I think Bob's answer is a good one. Uh, that uh, that it is a slippery slope, and people would would be spending money on on lots of things and capitalizing it, and, and we'd understate our budget. Uh, so, I guess the answer is that we we look at rather than rather than P and L like a business, we look at cash flow, uh, and 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 we have to. Uh, uh, how about Andrew Tish next? Thanks. Uh, how are you, Bob? Uh, Reasonably well, Andy. Good. Uh, with the um, entitlement, well, your accumulated deficits are about 25 to 27 trillion right now, uh, continuing to grow one to three a year, depending on uh, what, what it's going to look like. Do you take entitlements off the table in any discussion, uh, or do you reintroduce uh, entitlement uh, reform at some point in order to uh, get the uh, deficits down or more under control at some point? <laughs> uh, look, Andrew, it, 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 that's, it's, it's the, here's what I think, whatever it's worth. I, I know it's a political hot rail. Yeah, well, that, well, that's, that's putting it mildly. I, I think our bet is the following. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, you could means test Social Security, arguably, but there, as you know, there, there are a lot of reasons not to do that. And I guess I would not do it because I think then you start to make it into I think you, I think you subject, subjected to a, 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 another political argument against it, which I, I think we shouldn't want to, at least I don't think we should want to engage. But the way to get titles down is to keep the, at least one way, uh, you may want to like, like other ways, but one way would be to keep the programs as they are, but take our national health care costs, which are about 18% of GDP as compared to 10% in any other developed country with about equal outcomes. And get our national health care put in place health cost cost reduction measures that affect our national health care costs. Because if we get our national health care costs down, that will feed back into Medicare and Medicaid and could save us serious money. And that's what I think we should do. And in a, the ACA had some provisions like that in there, as you know. But unfortunately, the Congress, in its wisdom, uh, has. Uh, I think all of them, my recollection, maybe I'm wrong with this, certainly some of them <laughs> were eliminated and none of them I think have been effectively effectuated. That's what I would do, Andy. I don't. I think, I, I would not bring Social Security down. I wouldn't reduce benefits. 
you can make an argument that the CPI overstates the inflation and that the inflation adjustment should be changed. But I, I don't, I wouldn't personally do that. And I think on the Medicare, Medicaid, I wouldn't reduce the benefits, but I would try to get a national healthcare cost, which could not only make us a more efficient economy, but could also save us a lot on the fiscal side. But the politics are murderous. For sure. Thank you. Thank you. Next question from Bob Morris, please. Thank you. It's, it's uh, just such an honor and pleasure to, to hear the comments today. Uh, you know, globalization has seemed inevitable for at least much of my working life. And more than maybe anyone I've followed, your appreciation for the uh, way different countries are inter interconnected, um, you know, has been forefront in your work. Recently, we've seen, you know, borders closing for COVID, but also some other reasons that cause the question is globalization possibly going into reverse or is this just a blip? I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I know what I think we should do, but I, I don't know where this is all going to come out. There's no question that, and, and you all know this, all of us know this, China's trade practices in some respects really were very much at odds with global norms. But what Trump should have done is he should have gone to the EU instead of fighting with them. He should have gone to Mexico and Brazil. He should have gone to Japan and then collectively gone to China, which was more than double the GDP that was going to China. And then he should have done it quietly, not make a lot of noise about it. And he should have had tariffs as his last resort, not his first resort. It's real progress. I don't know. We have to, you know, an awful lot of this hinges on the China-US relationship. And, and that's a comp, I have a pretty strong views. I, I, again, I don't profess to know a lot about China, but I've been around this issue for a long time. And I hang out with people who have been around this issue professionally as much as anybody in, in our country. And I have pretty strong views of what I think we ought to do. First, we got to get through the election where everybody's going to be bashing each other about China as they always do in elections. We get through it. I think that the United States and China have an immense mutual self-interest in a different kind of relationship than the adversarial one that is now getting so much attention and creating so much noise, where we, we focus on climate change and nuclear weapons and terrorism and pandemic, et We develop a working relationship around them. Then we try to work with the Chinese to get trade norms that are serious. And on the geopolitical issues like the South China Sea and Taiwan, which by the way is one hell of a big issue waiting out there, and whatever else, we do the best we can to work with them and they the best they can to work with us. Now, if Biden were to take that approach, will it work? It depends what she wants. And who knows what Xi Jinping wants, but you don't find out until you try. So I don't know. I think it's a good question. I don't know where we're going. Plus, there's a lot of political animus toward trade in this country these days, yeah. in both parties. So I, I don't know where it's all going. And, and I will say this. I do think there is a good case to be made for, uh, I guess you'd call it, diversification of our supply chain relationships. But I think companies, companies will do that on their own because of the problems that that's created. So we'll see where this goes. I don't know. Uh, I'd like to uh, call on Bob Tuttle for the next question. Thanks, Howard. Um, I would just like to know if the secretary thinks if, if the vice president Biden, if elected president, does he have the skills um, and will he promote bipartisan solutions to our major problems that we've been talking about? Inequality, immigration, infrastructure, entitlements, healthcare costs. You know, it's interesting. Remember the beginning of the campaign? Well, maybe not the beginning, but toward the beginning of the campaign, there was a fundraiser, got a lot of publicity. 
where Biden, I was in the room at the time, actually, Biden, Eric Middleton was fundraiser for Biden. And at the fundraiser, he talked about how he had worked with Strom Thurmond and somebody else, I don't remember who it was, really repugnant people, because he wanted to get something done that was constructive. And he was willing to work with people whose views he disagreed with, and even views people considered repugnant. And John Lewis, and then he was criticized for having worked with Strom Thurmond, and John Lewis said, no, I think he did the right thing. Which, by the way, was, I think, interesting with respect to the wisdom of John Lewis. But I think Biden is, I think every, I've known him for God. This is, well, certainly for north of 30 years. And I think he is absolutely built to, I think his every instinct will be to work across partisan and policy divides, to try to bring people together. But I think he'll do it, and this is what I think, I think he'll do it from a base that's sensible. He's a very sensible guy. He really is, at least in my opinion. And he's always had good people around him, so I assume he'll have good people around him again. He's always had them. Uh, but yes, I, th- I, think he is, I think he is built to reach out. Now, if then the question is how <laughs> both reach out within his own party, and then across, which is important too, by the way, and then across party lines. Now, whether that, well, having said that, as, as Max could tell us, uh, you can reach out and, and get. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean he'll be successful at it, but I, I think he, I think he will absolutely do it, and I think he'd be very good at it. Next question from Joel Myers, please. Okay, Bob, uh, I enjoyed your comments uh, as I always do. Uh, I worry we face the greatest threat uh, to America as we know it in my lifetime. Uh, Bob, what is money? Uh, people save for the future by putting off gratification for more later and expect a return. But now there's no return on money. So people are reaching for yield, creating dangerous bubbles in real estate, bonds, and equity. Once the Fed loses the control of rates and is discredited, uh, there's going to be panic uh, as interest rates rise. All the wealth will be created, uh, will destroy, be destroyed as values come crashing down. How do we prevent that? Howard, <laughs> look, it's a risk. I, I worry about that too. I, I, I mean, you've stated it as sort of absolute. And for me, everything in life is about probabilities, but I think there's a, I think that you, that's a risk of something that is not being widely discussed. And I think, and a lot of very thoughtful people think that this can go on with the Fed. I said this before, so I'm repeating myself. I apologize. But people you all, names you all know, and you know, many of you know and respect, think this can go on for many years if need be. I don't know. I'm more of the concern. I have more of the concerns you just expressed, though. I would do it probabilistically, and I don't know what the odds are. Howard? Well, uh, you, you, can't, you can't prove by past events that, that these things have negative consequences, because it has been going on to some extent for the, certainly QE uh, and low rates for 12 years. Uh, and deficits, by the way. You probably remember when we were boys, they used to talk about, is it okay for, for countries to have, have debt? And uh, everybody seems to have gotten over that. But, but, uh, but it does, it, you know, there are possible ramifications out there to these things in terms of, of inflation, uh, the value of our currency, uh, et cetera. The, I, I think it, it is important to say, and Bob uh, implied it, the fact the, the things that the Fed and the Treasury have been doing have very serious possible negative consequences. But 
but but the fact that something has possible negative consequences doesn't mean it's wrong to do. And and we had to do the things that have been done or else all the depression on our hands. Period. I totally agree with that, Howard. The thing that I don't agree with, I totally agree with that, is I think we should also be doing quietly some contingency thinking. Yes. And that's what we don't seem to want to do. No, that's right. That, that's, that, that, that's my point, because it, it now true, it hasn't uh, bitten us yet, but it's building and building. And we look back through history of hundreds of years, uh, it always leads to the same result. Uh, we've just lived in extraordinary times because of automation and greatly increasing productivity, which has countered what would normally be inflation, but that may not continue. Right. By, by the way, you just made an interesting point that somebody made to me the other night, which is right, and I think it's worth repeating, and it goes back to what we talked with Max before. The more that we worry about our fiscal situation, the more important, after all, it's debt to GDP ratio, this counts, not the debt per se. So the more important it is to have GDP grow, which means more important is to have productivity growth to absorb the deteriorating debt situation. So it, it just it just accentuates the importance of doing that. Well, growth is what made the latter part of the 20th century fabulous, and it's what's made the last 20 years dreary. Yep. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's Good. right. Good. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, George Bradenburg. Go after entitlements, but you simultaneously said the way that you would get at that is try to improve health outcomes and reduce the cost of health care to, to the country. I'm curious as to what a health care reduction, a cost reduction policy might look like. Yeah, you know, I am really, uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of expertise. In fact, I have no expertise in health care. But there's an awful lot of been written about it and said about it. The idea basically, as, as I understand it at least, is to try to get the consumer of healthcare to be in a position where they have a stake in the game and make decisions based on some kind of a judgment about cost and benefit to themselves. But on the other hand, having said that, you, you can't impose that on people who don't have any means. So you have to provide, at least I think you have to provide universal health care but then provide some way to have rational judgments being made about the costs and, and, and benefits. But it's, I, as I say, I'm no expert. I don't, I don't have expertise in this, but there's a lot that's been done about it and it written about what could be done. The problem is the politics of it. Uh, uh, Jeff Bloomberg. Uh... By the way, another, another piece of that, Howard, yeah. Is, is defensive medicine. We have a litigation regime in this country, medical malpractice, but towards more broadly, but medical malpractice, which substantially increases the cost of health care because of defensive medicine. And so that's another piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Bloomberg, you asked a question. Maybe I'll read it for you. If we migrate manufacturing back to the U.S., won't it result in higher costs and de facto inflation? If we reverse the cost savings of outplacement. Yeah, I mean, if you, it's not. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know about the higher inflation part. That remains to be seen. But if you, if you, if you had a more efficient way of, of, of getting your inputs because you were produ or, or you manufactured goods or whatever it is you're getting, consumer goods, manufacturing inputs, whatever it may be, from abroad, and you now substitute. Uh, 
domestic production that you have reshipped, if you will, to the United States, reshored, then it will be more expensive. And so, yeah, it'll be less efficient. Whether that also reduces great inflation or not, I don't know, but that's certainly a... So I think everything you just said is right, at least in my opinion. Some of the caveat is it'll be more expensive and it may or may not also create more inflation. Certainly be less efficient. Uh, Jeffrey Rosen, a quick question. Quick question, and if you answered this before, Bob, I apologize as I joined late. Um, what's the risk to the dollar over time um, from a continuation of what you've described as the levitation scenario? I think Howard mentioned currency yeah. issues a moment ago. Yeah. And does that differ? How does that complicate the financing of deficits? Well, <laughs> if it's something, and this is in my, my draft right now, actually, if, if at some point, the international capital markets decide that they're wary of the dollar and as a result, they don't want to own our dollar-denominated treasuries. And they also decide that they're wary of our current long-term interest rates in terms of what's going to happen next because of fiscal and monetary policies. You could get a vicious cycle in which the currency, I'm not saying, I don't know what the odds are. You know what Howard said before, everything's a question of probabilities. Well, I don't know what the odds are, but you get a you get a currency coming apart. Dollars of two year low, by the way, or roughly speaking. Anyway, the dollar starts to go down. Investors don't want to hold treasuries, at least foreign investors don't, because they're dollar denominated. So they start getting out of those. Interest rates go up, and you could get a real unraveling. What are the odds on that? I don't know. Uh, I worry about it. On the other hand, we're in a situation right now where the rest of the world looks pretty lousy. And the dollar is still a reserve currency. And I, I think the dollar is going to remain the reserve currency for a long time to come. For China to be a reserve currency, they've got to make all kinds of changes. It's just they can't do it. That's not going to happen. I don't believe at least. They, they may substitute for us to some extent in trade. but And for the, for the euro, maybe someday, but I think that's all way off in time. Well, back in 2011 or 12, people were thinking about the euro as the candidate. And nobody talks about it anymore. Yeah, because look at Europe, Harold. Even with this recent deal that they managed to make, I mean, Europe is a bloody mess. Well, I shouldn't say that. One, one could, yeah, I, I actually think Europe is a bloody mess. And despite this recent deal, which was a, you know, the arrangement that they made, seven hundred fifty billion or something, it was a good. That I think that I think was, was a sensible thing to do. Well, good. This has been great, Bob. I want to thank you for it. I've enjoyed it. I'm sure everybody has enjoyed it. I'm going to call on Bill Galston, who's kind of the the uh, <laughs> the, the, the reverend around here to say the benediction. Yeah, Bill is a source of knowledge and wisdom. That's a good thing to do. Well, Bob, uh, that goes both ways. Uh, thanks so much for, for spending an hour with us. Uh, you know, a lot of things have changed in the 27 years and six months since you and Mac and I and maybe others on this call Worked, walked into a little but not insignificant building together. Uh, but one thing hasn't changed, thank God, and it's you. Uh, you know, you're, you give the same kind of advice you always did. It's, uh, it's evidence-based, it's balanced, it's bipartisan. Uh, and if I can use an old-fashioned word, it's humble. Uh, and what do I mean by the word humble? Uh, very simply, the essence of politics, and this is probably true of the private sector too, is decision-making under circumstances of uncertainty. Not just risk, but uncertainty 
when you know there's a range of outcomes, but you can't attach a probability to them. How do you think clearly in those circumstances? That's the fundamental problem we face now. It's a fundamental problem we always face. And every single sentence that you utter is suffused with a sense of what it is you don't know and we don't know. Uh, and you know, humility isn't a guarantee of success, but arrogance is a guarantee of failure. Uh, so we need your voice, which brings me to my second point. You know, we need your voice uh, in the councils of no labels. If you'd be willing to share it with us from time to time. Uh, I believe that no labels has created the most serious forum for discussion across party lines among experts and expert and elected officials that now exists in Washington. Uh, and it's a place to do serious work. Uh, and we're, we're about to get even more serious. So please let's, let's keep, let's keep the dialogue going. Third and final point. Uh, we have reached a conclusion or perhaps more accurately are reaching a conclusion as an organization which is a lot like the conclusion that Jay Powell stated uh, a couple of days ago. Whatever else is the case with the economy, we can't solve the economic problems until we first get a handle on the pandemic problem. Just can't. And we've experimented with the wrong approach for the better part of six months. And we are coming to the conclusion as an organization that a state by state approach has not worked and cannot work. And we're going to have to, we're going to have to develop and sell a serious national plan at the center of which is testing uh, and everything else radiates out from that. And, you know, and that, and, and we're going to be working on that in real time over the next few weeks. Uh, and we wanted to put everybody on this call on notice uh, that this is, this is something we're getting really serious about as an organization because I'm, if we can't crack this problem as a country, then you know we're going to be an object of global pity, as we are now, you know, because you know, remember Nixon's phrase about pitiful, helpless giant. Well, 50 years later, there's finally something to it, unfortunately. So once again, thank you, uh, and you know we we hope this dialogue will continue. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bill. And thank you all for being with us on the call. Secretary Rubin says it might take until the end of 2022 for the U.S. economy to return to where it was pre-pandemic. As he notes, this is both a global economic crisis and a humanitarian and health crisis, which will complicate the recovery. He also agrees with recent comments from former Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner that the Federal Reserve acted responsibly in their strong response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It was much more far-reaching than the response in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, Rubin believes it is necessary. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.